You're listening to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. Sex and relationship advice you can use tonight. Welcome to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. I'm your co-host, Brandon Ware, here with my always lovely other half, Dr. Jess. Feeling somewhat lovely this morning. I feel like we're getting into our 2021 groove. And, you know, if we go back to the Dion Roberts podcast on rest, I've been getting more rest and sleep than I ever have in my life. I think I'm growing. I think I'm an inch taller. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to attribute it, in all seriousness, to shutting my phone off earlier, Mm -hmm. making that commitment. And I've been trying to stick to it in 2021. I mean, we're only a short time into that. But having that alarm set on my phone or whatever the setting is to shut off my phone is really, I think, helping me sleep. So we're getting more sleep, but my sleeps are a little bit tormented. I feel like my body is still adjusting to this whole eight hours plus sleep. Like I think my body was more used to five and now it's like after five hours, I, even though we're going to bed earlier, I'm waking up. But I, I think it's getting us, getting us into a groove. I don't know. It feels good in the body. I agree. feels good. Almost embarrassed to admit how early we've gone to bed some nights. Don't tell the people. We used to have dinner later. (laughs) (laughs) We used to go to, remember, we used to make fun of the people who went to the club before 11 when we were young. You're going to the club at (laughs) at 1030, 11. What's wrong with you? Oh, now we're fast asleep. Now now we're asleep. I'm in my like, yeah, I'm in my fourth cycle of REM. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know how that works. So don't, don't quote me on that. All right. Today, we are going to be chatting with an old friend of the podcast who who is really doing incredible work in in this field via his nonprofit organization something positive for positive people and so he helps to provide therapy and support to folks who are diagnosed with herpes and other STIs and through his podcast he shares his own story of diagnosis and the stories of other people who are diagnosed and if if you tune in or follow Courtney, his name's Courtney Brame, on Instagram, you'll quickly learn that, you know, really like the worst symptom of herpes and STI diagnosis is really the stigma and the shame because he shares and he receives kind of countless messages from people who are devastated and believe that, you know, the lives and dating lives are over after a herpes diagnosis. And with permission, he shares these stories of folks who who contemplate suicide, who believe that they, they are now unworthy of love or happiness, people who stay in miserable and even abusive relationships because they don't think they can ever date again. And these are really powerful stories. I don't think I realized that there was such a strong association between a herpes diagnosis and suicide. So when he brought that to light, I was amazed at the work that he's doing. So incredible. And he is literally saving lives. Yeah, we talk about sex ed saving lives, and sometimes we have to, you know, explain that connection. But in Courtney's work, it's it's really, really clear. So I'm, I'm just thankful that Courtney Brahm is joining us once again. And his work actually ties in perfectly with our sponsor, Let's Get Checked, uh, because they offer at-home STI testing. You collect on your own, mail it in, access the results securely online. And, and testing, of course, is an essential part of safer sex because... For many STIs, the most common symptom is no symptom at all. So maybe, you know, there's folks out there who need the reminder, go get yourself tested. And if you'd rather do it from home, go to letsgetcheck.com and use code Dr. Jess to save and to let them know that you learned about it here. And so without further ado, let's invite Courtney to join us. 
Welcome back, Courtney. How are you doing? I am doing almost like guiltily well, like despite how things are going for a lot of people at this point right now. Um, there is a lot of overwhelm on my end in a positive way. So um, just this past uh, week, what was it, two weeks ago? Um, well, Something Positive for Positive People now is a nonprofit organization. And um, I met with my board about me paying myself a salary and being able to partner with organizations to raise more money so that we can extend the services that we provide, which we're providing mental health related services for people who have experienced a sexual trauma. That's what I want to eventually be able to say. But right now for where we are, I'm basically paying for people with herpes to get therapy if they need it. So uh, where we are right now, I got that approved. And now I'm in conversations with some sexual health related organizations about partnering with them on their grant applications and getting funding. So things suddenly got very real for me. <laughs> that That's great. Congratulations. Yeah, and, congrats. Um, such a needed support because with a herpes diagnosis, oftentimes your medical practitioner will focus on the physical side, but not necessarily the mental health side. Yeah. And one of the things that I've learned throughout just doing this work and recording the podcast and all of the different conversations that I've had with people, not only with HSV, but also who have HIV or who've experienced a uh, chlamydia, gonorrhea, or syphilis diagnosis, is that there is a direct connection between sexual health and mental health. And I think that that intersection is really where stigma resides. And until that gets addressed from that perspective, like I think there's an overemphasis on the fact that someone has an STI being uh, just like, oh, this is sex related when it's also so mental related. And then that part just completely goes unnoticed oftentimes, like when someone's being given a diagnosis. Well, let's back up just a moment uh, for folks who haven't listened to your podcast yet, but I know they will. Uh, can you tell us your story and why you started Something Positive for Positive People? Yeah, I will keep this as brief as possible because it's such a long story. But uh, the most important things are that uh, I've been positive for genital HSV2, which is the virus that causes herpes outbreaks for about eight years now. And for the first four to five years of my diagnosis, I just kind of was doing things the way that I knew to do them, which just meant take care of my body, manage my stress, um, and just keeping my immune system up as best I could. It was year four or five into my diagnosis that I began to come across different communities of people with herpes. And this is uh, in various social platforms as well as dating websites. And once I got there, like I was excited to be there because there were so many other people who were living with this. And when you first get your diagnosis, despite what the statistics say, you're the only person that you know who has this virus. Unless someone has opened up to you in the past or unless someone opens up up to you uh, recently after your experience, you know, for many of us, we're the only person that we know. And so I got into these communities and I started socializing, I'm dating and life is great for me. But here and there, I would find that there was someone who expressed wanting to end their life after their diagnosis. So suicide ideation, um, even suicide attempts. 
And after seeing that a few times, you know, it wasn't just like a one-off thing. It was pretty common. And so I began to reach out to these people and go, hey, you know, it's not that bad. And this is probably the worst thing that you can say to someone who is having suicide ideation. So uh, what I started to do was a lot of these people didn't look like me. They didn't have my life experiences, so to speak. So for instance, like me saying that to a younger white woman or an older Hispanic man or someone of a different ethnicity uh, or age range or geographical location didn't really carry the same weight as it would from someone who may have looked like them or had like similar cultural background. So I began just recording conversations with people that perhaps we otherwise wouldn't hear from. Uh, these are people who are okay with their diagnosis. I mean, there's good days and bad days due to the stigma, but these people who we would probably never hear from about their experience were willing to just converse with me on a recorded platform for me to send to these people directly. And after a while, uh, to give you an idea, like there are so many people that this was happening for that I got overwhelmed with just sending emails and butchering the email address, having to resend, making sure they got it and all of that. So I decided to put all of these uh, recordings up into one place, which turned into the Something Positive for Positive People podcast platform. Love it. And now you're also offering mental health supports. And I've heard you say so many times that the worst symptom with herpes is the stigma itself. Uh, why do you think there is such a, an intense stigma around herpes and STIs more generally? And has it shifted over, you know, your last eight years of experience? Um, to answer that question, I would say, uh, well, I want to make sure to preface this with, for many people, the stigma has seemed to be more worse than the physical symptoms are. And as far as how prevalent the stigma is, there are so many different layers of it. Like I think that one layer is from within the community of people who have HSV. Like I said, you know, when I found out I had it, I was the only person I knew who had it for years. And then I come into contact with all of these different support groups, communities, and resources that are so challenging to find because of the shame and people not really wanting to put their identities out there or risk being found out. So that in itself is one of the symptoms of stigma, like just having support being so challenging to find. I think that when a person is delivered their diagnosis from whatever healthcare provider they're receiving it from, that is another layer because what happens is the way that a person is delivered their diagnosis often determines whether or not or how a person chooses to disclose. So if your healthcare provider is meeting you with judgment and stigma and they're making these assumptions on you as someone who might have only had sex one time with one person and then ended up testing positive with herpes, you're gonna begin to have that projected on you and internalize that now you're gross, now you're the kind of person who sleeps with everybody and this is going to be the perception of you as you move forward and that isn't the case and then there's also the media of course where we see the jerk the jerks <laughs> we see the jokes and <laughs> we hear the jokes and you know even now like there's this campaign against donald trump saying std stop the donald 
uh, stop the spread mm. of the infection. And that in itself is another one of those stigmatizing things that just kind of goes mm. unnoticed because the priority in that is, you know, the presidential campaign and not necessarily on the mental effects of someone who's affected by an STD, STI, uh, and what they may be experiencing. So because we don't really have the reality of the experiences of people who are living with herpes, I don't think that there's really any call for change. Like it's not necessary uh, or a priority. So therefore it's like, why change something if it isn't an issue? But to the people who are affected by it, this is in fact an issue. It's just the stigma is also keeping us collectively in this cycle of suffering and then not wanting to alleviate the suffering because of the risk of people knowing what we're suffering with if that makes sense and then i can go into more detail but those are typically like the main three the media the people who are in fact uh affected by it and then uh the source of our diagnosis those are three areas where i believe that the stigma is most prevalent and um to answer your question about how it's changed over time what i'm noticing is that with a lot of the younger people that I speak with and interview, they're dealing with this a lot better than some of the older individuals that I've conversed with. You know, some of the older people have like this, uh, this idea of I'm taking this to the grave. I'm never going to tell a soul. I'm only going to date other people with herpes. And then the younger people are like, I'm not going to let this define me. They, they, they seem more empowered. Um, I just interviewed someone who was diagnosed at age 17 and she's 21 years old now. And she said, her friends and her uh, her friends around her, even in high school, when someone she disclosed to had tried to out her and tell the school, hey, you know, she has herpes, blah, blah, blah. Her friends were able to stand up for her because they knew and they were like, hey, why are you trying to bully our friend? Like, that's not cool. And I think more of those kinds of experience need to be shared so that people understand, oh, this is an option. This is a way for me to operate and navigate the stigma I don't have to live in shame about this. I can utilize my support system and then be able to, uh, you, you see the how someone else is being loved and cared for despite expressing that they do in fact have herpes and they're not being treated any differently for it. You know, that's interesting. Um, do you think that having kind of allies around you is important? Having people who will stand up and, you know, when we think about all the different ways in, in which people are stigmatized and also marginalized, we're at a point where there is pressure to speak up, even if it doesn't affect you. And so I wonder if we're at a moment where the same is happening around the stigma of STIs. Yes. Oh, yes. Uh, I am seeing that and I, I was just thinking back uh, and reflecting on like when I was in elementary, middle school, like for instance, it wasn't cool to be gay. Gay people got bullied, gay people got made fun of and there was like an interesting transition point between like middle school and high school where uh, there were people who would stand up for their gay friends even if they weren't around. So let's say mm -hmm. someone called something gay or they made fun of someone or something uh, based on what they were attracted to or how they presented themselves or expressed their gender identity. You know, while I didn't have the language for this in high school, I do recall like seeing that these community, the members of the LGBT community in my high school were stood up for, they were cared for. 
and looking back like now I understand, you know, the terms like in the closet, you know, imagine holding this thing in to yourself for so long and then finally being able to open up to your friend and say, hey, here's how I feel. And then being met with nothing but love and support and allyship. I see that as a direct parallel of where uh, stigmatized individuals who are experiencing uh, a positive SCI diagnosis and like navigating the challenges of the stigma can draw from like people can draw from that experience of the LGBT community from when I was in elementary to high school and even to now like even if someone like for myself like I can't think of any gay male friends that I have who are openly gay but like for the people who come around me and may say like slanders or talk about someone who is you know I can easily just say hey man that's not that's not cool and even myself being an ally I'm able to uh, step up and express allyship in that way uh, to just help and support the people who I understand what they're going through. But we can't understand what someone else is going through if we're not being communicated with about it. So there's also the layer of being a safe space or offering that brave space for people to share such a vulnerable bit of information about themselves. Well, I think there's a piece around cultivating a safe space regardless of whether or not you know someone's diagnosis. So we we know that, number one, many people don't know that they have a positive diagnosis because many people are asymptomatic. We know, as you just said, that the community in and of itself, that positive people continue to shroud their own diagnosis in shame and secrecy. And so when we hear a joke about STIs, when we share a meme like the one you described about um, stopping the Donald what we aren't thinking about is the fact that there are positive people within our communities. There are positive friends on our feed. And so I think that, um, that what you said about, hey, that's not cool, that might just be the language that we need to say, like, I understand the sentiment. I, too, want to stop the Donald. But this also further stigmatizes people who have a positive diagnosis. And I know that that's not always an easy conversation. I, I've been, I'm thinking about race and I'm thinking about how I've always said to you, Brandon, that it's not just about standing up when people are around. It's about standing up to the little things when people say, make racial, racist microaggressions in, in private. And, you know, there doesn't have to be a person of color there for you to say, yeah, that's not cool with me. That's not going to fly. And similarly, it's interesting. I wonder if we can also speak up around not just, you know, the stigma of STIs, but it's it's sexual stigma altogether. There are all these different stigmas we attach to sex. And then it brings me to the intersection of race and sexual stigma. And I, I don't know if you and I have ever talked about this, Courtney, but I don't think that we've ever talked about this, Courtney, but is your experience, do you see it as different as a black man? The hard part about that is that I don't really have many experiences to compare it to. Um, Historically, like black men, at least in my life, have never really been open about their sexuality, you know, outside of the number of partners that we might have had. Uh, I've played sports since I was 12 years old through college, and that's kind of been the extent of it. So there's not really been uh, conversations like in this space of sex positivity and sex education. I'm learning about consent and I'm learning that sex education in itself is so much more broad than just here's how you don't get an STD and it just trickles down into so many other layers that I don't I don't really see experiences that parallel my own there's not really many role models 
uh, for me navigating this space. So as far as like comparing my experiences, the only thing that I would say that I have to compare it to would be uh, like so many white women being in the space of sex education and how they talk about uh, these aspects of sex education and that they're saying that there is in fact like some uh, racial elements that play a role there but for me like I just really haven't known any different or had really experiences that sort of align with what it is that's being said on social media but then again also you know it's social media it's not really real life <laughs> so, so what about your dating experience so your diagnosed uh, your positive diagnosis came eight years ago but you could have had you could have been asymptomatic long before that what was it like dating for you when you were first diagnosed Ooh, I wasn't. Uh, I tried to revert back into my old relationships uh, with the people that I've already told. So um, one of my partners, actually, she had assumed that she had it because we had been sexually active for so long unprotected. And come to find out later, she had gotten tested and tested negative for HSV. So that was also like an interesting observation as well, that someone who has herpes can have sex with someone who doesn't have herpes and be unprotected and not give them herpes so that opens up a whole different conversation right there but uh after that relationship ended uh there was a period of you know me just being in and out of the that relationship and then one of the first people that i disclosed to outside of that we ended up uh being together for a while and her one of her close relatives ended up actually having genital HSV too. So when I disclosed to her, you know, she kind of already had some information about it and she was ready and willing to move forward. Um, after that relationship ended, I think was when I really became single. So about three years, uh, three or four years into my diagnosis was when I really became single and dating was hard. Like I would say I mindlessly navigated the dating space where, um, I would even reject myself prior to giving someone the opportunity to even give me a chance because I was so hell bent on not wanting to tell people, hey, I have herpes, right? So the the shame around having to disclose my STI status was enough to keep me kind of stuck. And there were moments where I was braver and I would disclose and things were okay. Uh, and once I had those experiences to call from, I was able to move forward and like, oh, you know, I can, in fact, like, I can do this. I can disclose. I can date on regular sites like everyday people. I can meet people in real life. And I would I would still do that. But there are also times where I would completely self-sabotage interactions um, just by like, you know, not closing the deal, so to speak. Like if I'm out and back way back in the dinosaur ages i guess it seems like now when we could socialize and go to bars like i'd be <laughs> in a conversation with someone and um we'd be talking and things would be good and then like i'd just end the interaction be like all right nice talking to you leave no phone number no snapchat no 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 kind of way of getting back in contact with this person and that was sort of what my pattern was as we moved forward um, but I will say, like, once I got involved in, like, the HSV communities and uh, found the dating sites for people with herpes, that changed. It was almost like that one thing was really what was holding me back from expressing myself and being able to uh, be, like, flirty and funny and myself, really. 
Um, so I had, I, I like to say that like I was in love for a lot of weekends because that's kind of what it turned into. Um, like you meet people and the trouble with that is that not a lot of people are close. So, you know, I've met people in New York and Minnesota and Texas and California. Like, so I've, I did a little bit of traveling, so to speak, over those time periods. And after, uh, after like doing that for a while, I began to notice something. And this, while it's relevant in dating, it's also relevant in life. I noticed that I liked myself a lot more as someone who the people around me knew that I had herpes. So we've got these complete strangers online and there's like support groups and forums and things like that. And I'm so social in these settings. And then I get around people who've known me my whole life and I'm treating them like I should be treating these complete strangers. And it was like the, hmm. the roles were just reversed. And when I realized that the only thing that was different was the fact that these strangers knew that I had herpes and these people who've known me for at least half my life don't know. And I'm being very reserved and sheltered around them. So I had a very important decision to make when I hit that crossroads of having to start, you know, opening up and begin to disclose to at least my close friends so that they could be supportive to me. And in doing so, no one really like no one shamed me or anything like that. No one was mean. No one was judgy, at least not to my face and not <laughs> to a point where anyone <laughs> was able to uh, get it back to me. So I feel like I had a damn good support system and a damn good uh circle of friends around me in order to have been met with such love and support so um just bringing that all you know to a complete close like dating was a roller coaster for me uh until i began to get more comfortable around my diagnosis and i say more comfortable because like as we were talking before the podcast like i've just been seeing a therapist over the last five months and learned that there were some things that uh needed to be dealt with surrounding my diagnosis so I'll stop there. And like, if you got anything you want to add before we go into that, let me know. <laughs> I, I find this all uh, really helpful. Like the idea that you learn to like yourself um, by opening up, by not hiding. And there is there is such a burden in secrecy, right? And it's, you know, of course, shrouded in shame. And so I want to ask you, how do you build a support system? How do you disclose to people? And just your method. I know that not, you know, not everybody will use your approach yeah so as far as building the support system i mean i think that it's already there um i didn't realize it was until i started to utilize it and reach out i didn't actually go and pull someone new in exclusively for the sake of disclosing to them that i have herpes the people who were around me who were like genuinely concerned like hey man why are you always on your phone or like while I'm indulged in online platforms, like chatting with people and things like that, uh, why aren't you here? Why aren't you present? These were people who care about me asking me to be with them in times where we were physically in the same presence, but I'm somewhere else energetically, right? So that in itself gave me the opportunity to just easily transition into, all right, man, here's, here's what's going on with me. Uh, found out I had herpes and I'm bummed about it. Like, here's like, I don't even get outbreaks, but I have to tell people this. And it's embarrassing, you know, to just say how you really feel about it in a place or to a person that 
has already been there with you. Like they've probably already seen you struggle and suffer. Like some of the people that I told initially were my teammates and we've got some embarrassing ass stories together uh, from <laughs> just playing sports. So it's like when I'm telling them this, they're like, oh, that's it. Damn, dude, you know, well, I had chlamydia one time or two times or a chronic chlamydia even, or I know so-and-so has herpes. Like I hooked up with this person and they had herpes. Like you'd be surprised what comes out when you just reach out to what's already there around you. And I think that people have a sense of who they can and cannot tell certain things to, but uh, you don't really know that until you try. So perhaps even trying to share something, you can even make up a story and say, oh, this embarrassing ass thing happened to me. And this is how I felt about it. And just kind of see what a person's response is. And if they're responding well to this made up thing that you can easily pull back from and be like, oh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I just wanted to see what you'd say. Uh, then you know whether or not your herpes diagnosis is something safe for you to share with them. Um, and then as far as like, did you just want to know about disclosing to your support system or uh, also dating? Uh, everyone. I, I'm thinking, so when you do share your positive status with someone you're dating, um, how do you want them to respond? What's language that feels good for you? Ooh, so I find that there are three responses, only three. There is yes, as in upset, uh, acceptance, tell me more, I want to learn more. There's flat out no. And then there's me too. So you've got a 33.3 with the line over the three on the other side of the decimal percent chance of <laughs> being rejected. So that's 66.6 .6 with the line over the six chance of getting the desired outcome. Um, I've made the mistake throughout my time here calling disclosures successful because you move forward and have sex with somebody. I think that the nature of success in the disclosure needs to be even the initiation of conversation around your sexual health status and being able to set these boundaries in place and be like, hey, look, when's the last time you were tested? What were you mm -hmm. tested for? Do you know? And then being able to also offer that as well. Um, I disclosed to one of my most recent partners and I, I've put it on my dating profile and she saw that and I still initiated the conversation when we were in person. And I let her know, hey, you know, here it is, here it, it goes. I have genital herpes. I had it for about eight years now. Here's what it means for me. It means that I could potentially give it to you. I've not had outbreaks, I've managed my stress, I've managed my diet, uh, I exercise to keep my immune system up to where it minimizes my chances of having an outbreak. And so I'm telling her all of this and then you know, I ask her, all right, well, when's the last time you got tested? She's like, well, first, thanks for telling me. Um, I have herpes too and I was tested and she gave me the date that she was last tested and what she was tested for. And even me being someone who's been open about this at least for four years now and having this public platform, like I still get a little bit of a anxiety around disclosing because you genuinely don't know how a person's gonna respond. So best case scenario, mm -hmm. you hear, I also have it. Second best is tell me more. And then the thing that we fear the most that's least likely to happen is just for a person to call us disgusting and all these other names uh block us and tell everybody that they know that we have herpes and this almost never happens <laughs> right so this is really about managing expectations and fears and of course our greatest fear uh, in every realm of life is unlikely 
uh, to occur. Now, I'm sure you've also heard stories of people being very hurt and of people treating one another really terribly. Uh, and then also there's this piece that's that I think so important that so many people don't know their status. So you happen to know your status because you've been tested. But, uh, you know, not only do you know your status, you also talked about managing the symptoms. So there's a term, I don't know if you use the term prodrome. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you can kind of just explain that to people. Um, so I've not used it. I've seen it lately. And I think that it's like, okay. I feel like an outbreak is coming. It's the kind of context that I see in it. So for me, what I've noticed is there's a sensation of, I don't know if you've ever had like an itch, a mosquito bite or something like crawling on you. There's a sensation that you get after you scratch an itch temporarily. And it's like a relief type sensation. If I feel that in my genital region, I know perhaps an outbreak is coming on. So I should take medication. I should refrain from having sex, uh, at least, you know, using my genitals uh, with a partner. And those are just kind of what the precautions are. You know, just it's probably what I've learned is that herpes is a really good roadmap or compass for mm -hmm. allowing you to take care of yourself or making you take care of yourself because it's like okay i'll even give you this example i was under a very stressful situation when i felt that i was going to get fired from a job i got fired from my job i had an outbreak mm -hmm. and there was another time where uh i was going to go house sit for someone and i was doing all of the prep and like budgeting for it and everything and i had a lot of anxiety and i felt that sensation as well and it was like okay i need to just say no so I reached out and I was like, hey, I'm not going to house it for you. Like, I'm not going to be able to do it. And I felt such a relief, like, just on a mental level. And I noticed that those symptoms went away. So, like, high stress situations are triggers for me um, when I'm not doing anything about them. So, and I, I want to make sure to say that because, like, even now with uh, hosting something positive for positive people and doing what I'm doing for the nonprofit, this is a high stressful situation, but I'm doing something with the stress. So as long as that energy, to me at least, is moving, then that is what it means for me to manage stress. So I'm still putting myself under stressful situations, even in working out, yoga. These are stressful situations on the body, but I'm moving it. Like I'm, I'm making sure to do something with it. And a lot of times where what I've experienced in talking to people when they get really stressed out and bummed out about their diagnosis, there's often something underneath that that just isn't moving. There's no progression towards anything and they just like get heavy and heavier and heavier and more and more down about the fact that they have herpes and all of the things that really came with it. You know, I know you're a, an athlete, but you just brought up something about herpes being a good compass for taking care of yourself, not just your body, but your mind and your whole person. Have you found that since your positive diagnosis, you're able to recognize stress better in your body and attenuate its effects or reduce the triggers? Yeah. Um, and this makes me think about an interesting story. So there was a time in college where I thought I did have herpes before I actually had it. So I go in and I go to get tested. And, you know, as a college athlete, you're working out regularly, you've got practice, you've got games, and you're constantly eating, you're constantly moving, right? So I get tested and the results come back negative. What I noticed on my test was that it said uh, it's an antibody test. So 
if you test above the number one, for instance, then you are positive for HSV, one or two, whichever one was listed. If you test under that number, then you're considered negative. What I did notice is that there was a presence of antibodies in my system, but it wasn't enough for me to have tested positive. So I don't know if it was repeat exposure or with time that this was able to get to a point where it was positive. So perhaps I was in the early stages of it. I have no clue. But two years later is when uh, I stopped playing sports. I'm lazy. I'm living with my grandmother who's cooking <laughs> all these fried foods and getting takeout mm. all the time. And I said, you know what, F this, I'm never working out again because like working out and running and all those things were punishments for me. So lo and behold, I get an outbreak one day and, you know, I look up and I'm like, all right, well, where am I at? I'm like 270 pounds at this point, not doing any sort of uh, physical activity and bam, outbreak. So what I learned from that is, okay, shit, maybe I did have this for a while. And the fact that I was so active was something that kept it at bay. It was something that kept my numbers under that uh, under what it would have been in order for me to test positive. Or maybe that wasn't the case. We'll never know. <laughs> but that was just an interesting observation for me. So yes, it did in fact change the way I did things because I was like, I never want to experience this again. I never want to see my genitals look the way that they did when I had that first outbreak. I don't want to feel that discomfort. And I don't want that like reminder of those initial feelings that I had. And I know that it could still come up. It could still happen. But I know that I'm doing everything that I can to, at the very least, minimize the possibility of it being like a recurring thing. And I'm not, I, I don't want to suggest, oh, here's the silver lining, but I, I want to clarify, uh, you know, you talk about something positive and you, you talk about all the positive things for positive people, but also you're realistic about it. Uh, do you find that you take better care of yourself overall since the diagnosis? Is there... Is that a positive outcome? Way better care of myself, yes. And, like, I'm learning all things in moderation. So I tried this vegetarian at home shit, and that did not work out well for me. Like, I did it for a long time. But, like, even when I go out to eat, I'm not going to limit my options, right? So I'll find that I just ate out more, and I would eat even hmm. probably even more shitty to fill myself up at home. So, like, I'd eat rice and veggies and then just be like, all right, I guess we're going to have dessert. Whereas when I ate meat at home, I may not even want dessert. So uh, as of yesterday, actually, I started incorporating meat back at home and I'm just cooking a lot more of my own foods. So uh, that's a change that I made. But I think also like some people are just designed to eat meat, you know, so I might be one of those people. And uh, <laughs> yeah, but it, it made me at the very least look at options as far as taking better care of myself, not just physically, but also mentally and emotionally, too. So having this diagnosis really also like highlighted the fact that I had this boundarylessness to me. Um, and I can point out a million situations where I've just not had boundaries with people in my life and found myself in a situation where it was it was an undesired situation. And throughout the process of getting to that point, I just kind of, you know, didn't have any boundaries there. So, you know, when I woke up one day and was like, oh, shit, I don't have boundaries. You know, I've learned the importance of being able to say no and then also be able to say yes to the things that I absolutely want to say yes to. And 
build like being able to manage and set expectations as well just like you said earlier like that's been another thing as well so through having consistent sexual health conversations with partners that's also helped with uh, other areas of life being able to do that with other relationships with friends with family members with yeah potential partners but also business partners and at work and working with people just strangers and setting the expectations not only for how you're going to treat people but also how you're going to allow for yourself to be treated i like that you talk about you know the positive sides for you personally um also outside of the dating and relationship realm because obviously uh, an sti diagnosis as you said affects all these different areas of your life now before we let you go i want to ask you just to leave us with uh some insight on what each of us, what listeners, what Brandon and I, what therapists, what health practitioners, what can we do to reduce the shame and stigma around herpes and other STIs? What can we do today or tomorrow? First, just recognize that we all do know someone who's living with an STI, who's had an STI, and that the sex piece should not be exclusively what's focused on. We should focus on the mental piece so that we can see, oh, that there's an entire person here. So Mm -hmm. developing allies, having allyship from the people around us is what's most necessary at this point in time. Uh, I praise sex educators because not only do you have to do a lot of teaching, but you have to do a lot of unteaching. Like a lot of the learned things that people, the masses have really don't apply in this space anymore. And not only that, but you also have to let people know, hey, sex education is not just sex. It's also consent. It's also relationship management. It's also body autonomy and knowing uh, your body parts and your anatomy and all of these different pieces that go into it. So y'all doing the work of the divine, really. And so like, <laughs> I, I want to make sure to give y'all my praises in regards to that. And then as far as healthcare professionals go, you know, takes I'm taking it back to the um the sex and mental health piece people who receive a herpes diagnosis like the way that your scd prevention or intervention efforts come off to that person are going to directly impact whether or not that person goes on and gives someone the informed consent that they need in order to move forward or they just choose not to say anything at all so it's very important that our healthcare providers are able to be equipped with the tools that they need in order to see this from a mental health perspective as well because uh, there's something that says uh, the CDC actually the CDC does not recommend testing for HSV because it shows no behavior change and I think that's something to really highlight as well is that yeah perhaps it doesn't show any behavior change but it highlights a behavior that perhaps needs to be evaluated and perhaps be evaluated with a mental health provider. Uh, Someone I was speaking to, and I'll wrap this up here, uh, yesterday actually, she opened up to me. We interviewed on a previous episode, the F-Boy podcast episode, right? Uh, I forget what number it is. So if you search, that's the one it is. And we talked specifically about one relationship that she had where she received her diagnosis, but there were pieces of that that parallel previous relationships where abuse took place and gaslighting and these were things that she didn't recognize until herpes brought all of this to the surface and it was like while she was dwelling on the fact that she has herpes 
there were these underlying things that once she began to explore the herpes diagnosis, it was like, oh my God, I have a pattern of having abusive partners and not having my no be heard. And this was something that was just eye opening for her. This is something that happens on a regular basis for people. And it takes for them to be willing to pursue the healing, uh, for them to look at these things and do the work that's required in order to heal. Like, this is what we can uncover from our herpes diagnoses. And for many of us, it just starts with our first points of contact when we open up to someone about what it is that we're going through. That makes so much sense. Well, I want to really thank you for your time, your perspective, and encourage people to head on over to Something Positive for Positive People, available on all podcast platforms, and either look to support and listen and learn. I think for, I know many sex educators and therapists and folks working in the helping professions are listening, and uh, I, I learned so much from you and so, many, so much from your, your guests. You talk about so many different things, and what I'm finding most interesting is that intersection of sexual health and mental health and the way stigma it exists uh, at or around that intersection. So thank thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate you extending your platform for this conversation. So I'm appreciative. I love the podcast. Thank you for what you're doing. You and Brandon, thank you both. And Kelly, shout out to you. (laughs) (laughs) Kelly producing behind the scenes. Thank you. And thank you to you for listening. Thanks to Let's Get Checked for their ongoing support. Please share, subscribe, and review wherever you get your podcasts so more folks can dive deeper into these important discussions on sexuality and we can continue to destigmatize all these discussions around sex. I mean, th- this is about pleasure and fulfillment, yes, but it's also about enriching and as Courtney is doing, saving lives. And we know that sex ed can do just that, especially for folks in communities who are who are forced to the margins. So let's keep spreading the good word. So take care of yourselves first, folks, today. And thanks again for being here. You're listening to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. Improve your sex life. Improve your life.